0: Hey friends, your pal Mike Shea from Sly Flourish here with the Lazy D&D Talk Show. In this weekly show, we talk about all things D&D. This show is brought to you by the patrons of Sly Flourish. If you are enjoying this show, you can help me out by becoming a patron of Sly Flourish, signing up at Patreon.com/slyflourish, and helping support shows like this. So, to the patrons of Sly Flourish, thank you so much for your support. We have a relatively short list of topics today, so we're gonna we're gonna carve into a lot of patron questions. The patron questions are are always interesting they they cover a lot of topics they cover a lot of different things so i I really i really enjoy i really enjoy answering the patron questions so i'm glad to i'm glad to spend a little bit of time on that but i thought i would start off with a lazy dm companion update and i actually just got new stuff for the lazy dm companion today i've got two new things that i can show you today so the exciting news there's no bad news today it's all good news and the exciting news is that i received the last the final two pieces of art that i needed to finish up the book and that is a manor map and a a, a last piece of spot art so uh, let's let's take a look at those so the first one is the manor map by saga by saga mckenzie i just got this piece from her today it is a three-story manor with a little guard post a th- like a three-story guard post and the per- this map is intended to serve numerous purposes. You can use it as an infiltration adventure. Like if you have to sneak in and grab something from somewhere, you can use it for that. It, is, it could serve as a uh, character home base. If you uh, want to give a area to your characters, you can do that. You can even just sort of break it up into pieces. You could have an assault. You could have like meetings that are occurring here. Characters are meeting an NPC here. You can do it for a whole bunch of different purposes. So a lot of the maps that we have in the Lazy DM's Companion are intended for you to be able to use them for lots of different things. So this was, I think, by far the most complex map that we have in the book. And I think it's really awesome. So it's going to be very cool. And uh, yeah, so that's the last map, right? We have all of the other maps uh, are in hand. And I think I've showed them off at various times. So that one is very cool. And then we have finally, the, we have the final piece of spot art. And that is the final piece of spot art. This is the artwork for the God Generator. And I think it is awesome. It is, it is really, really, a really, really cool piece. I think it might be my favorite piece in the entire book. And it's really supposed to show like, the, you know, that you can sort of build gods from multiple pieces and have them kind of in your thing. So it's really, it's really, really cool. I'm very excited. I'm very excited for that one. So that is the final piece of spot art. So with that in hand, uh, I'm going to get all of that over to Scott Gray this afternoon. And he has already been updating the PDF. So I think that the, we should have a new draft of the PDF early this week. We're going to take a look through that and make sure everything's cool. Give it like one good glance over. And next week, I'm going to put together the art. And now that I've got all of the art and all the maps, I'm going to put together the art and map pack for it so that we can deliver the final PDF and the final art and map pack. And I'm hoping maybe late next week or late this week, early next week, maybe, but certainly before the end of the month. So, we will get that out. We will send an email through BackerKit to everybody saying, hey, this file has been updated. You can go and grab the latest version of the Lazy DMs Companion. And at that point, the PDF of the Lazy DMs Companion will be delivered. And that means about half of the backers for this Kickstarter will be fully, they will have received all of their rewards. And, and everybody on the Kickstarter will receive the workbook or will receive the, the Lazy DM Companion PDF. So yeah, so that's, that's awesome, right? That's, this, is, this, is going, this is going really, really well, I'm very excited. So then then the next, what's, the, what's up next? And up next is really nailing down the print version. I have Monday, I think I'm gonna be talking to Chris at Nord and we are going to come up with our final strategy for which of the two printers or which, how we're gonna divvy up the printing among two companies and uh, figure that out. I think I'm gonna definitely put in an order or I send an email out for an order on Monday. Uh, for like a bunch of copies. That's the North American order. And then we're going to do the European order as well. So i still looking probably in the middle of the year. Middle of the year for deliveries is is what we're aiming for now. And of course, things can change. But generally speaking, that should be good. So yeah, really, really, really cool. Uh, Spoopy Druid says, I loved using this book already. That uh, is awesome. I'm so excited. I'm I'm glad people are getting a chance to use it. It, it, is, it is really cool. So things are all good on the Lazy DMS Companion front. I'm very, very happy with it. Very excited about it. And I love, and it's great that like literally this morning before the show, I got these emails that says, hey, from two different artists. They're like, hey, I'm done with your, your piece. And they just look awesome. It's just, it's so cool. So this past, er, this previous Wednesday, I had my first session running Wild Beyond the Witchlight, the latest DD hardcover adventure. And I had a really great time. There's probably a little bit of recency bias here. I'm probably, my, 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 my you know, I'm probably being biased in my in my feelings on this. But I think I had more fun in that session than I had in all of the sessions of Rhyme of the Frost Maiden. Which is, you know, me bagging on Rhyme of the Frost Maiden again, right? Like I can't just stop bagging on Rhyme of the Frost Maiden, I guess. But boy, did we have a good time. I had a really, really good time. It was a session zero, so we spent probably two hours of the three hours that we that we gamed on character creation and things like that and one of the things that just my, my wife came up with on the spot that was that was just great is the idea that every so everybody there had a lost item right they had a lost they had lost something at the carnival and she said what if we were all part of the same support group like what if we all went like had put together a support group and the support group is why we were all bound together and i just thought that was awesome it was so perfect right so they've been in this support group and everybody had lost something and everybody was kind of going through like what they had lost and like some people said like i didn't lose it but my whole family lost all their memories of me so when i returned it was a Harringon in the middle of the of the forgotten realms right and they're like there aren't any herringon families except one that he knew of and they forgot that he was a member of their family and they kind of rejected him because they're like we don't know who you are and he's like what do you mean like how many herringorns are there and they're like we're sorry we don't know who you are so that was really kind of interesting and heartbreaking my wife's character lost her sense of time, and not only has she lost her sense of time, but everything she does to try to be on time for something, it, it it somehow fails, right? So like even if she's like lighting a candle, and when the candle burns out, that means that the time has passed. It doesn't work that way. Or if she gets like a fancy gnomish clock, the gnomish clock fails when she needs it to. And the funny bit there was the even though there's only six of them in this in this group that's known as the wtf the witch light the witch light ticketless foundation or which light ticketless fellowship wtf they 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 have like a lot of bureaucracy in this in their in their support group and even though they knew that my wife's character was bad with time, because of the way like everything got elected and worked out, she was the one responsible for ensuring that they got together for the carnival when the carnival was going to come in so they could go in and retrieve their lost stuff. And of course, that meant they were a week late. And the carnival had already come and gone the first time that they wanted to arrive, which meant they had to wait another eight years for the carnival to come back again. And I thought that was just hysterical. It was a great reason why it's been 16 years since they can go to the carnival. And that was because the last time they tried to do it, they failed, right? They, 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 <laughs> and they were a week late. So I thought that was hysterical. So everybody was just having a great time with their characters like that. And then we started the adventure. And I used a, I used a trick that I had read on Reddit there's a whole thing in the adventure about you can you can do these sort of fay packs a fay pack for the evening in order to get in and, and get a ticket and, and get in and go to the show rather than having to pay or rather than having a ticket up front and the fay packs are really fun but the adventure as written doesn't use them because you are given your your be, your, your your be be, be, your be gifted be, be your your he you know, you're given a set of tickets, right? And so somebody on Reddit mentioned, well, what I did is I had a bunch of kids who didn't have tickets that were like them when they didn't have tickets. And the characters can choose to give the kids the tickets and then they can take the, they can take the fay Pact. And one, all but one of the characters took the fay Pact, gave their tickets to the kids and the kids went in. And the interaction between the kids and the characters was hysterical. It was really like, it was, I, I felt like on my game, I felt like on my game with like the role playing of these characters, the kids and, and the surprises that the kids, the kids are like hardcore and they're, you know, just fun. And so we didn't even get, we, we just got into the carnival at the end of the session, but I, I was so in love with the characters already. And I was so in love with like the atmosphere. And what occurred to me was like, when we buy a, published adventure like that the th- how much the theme in the atmosphere actually matters right how much we are trying to it like there's all the details in an in an in, a, in an adventure right there's all like the specifics but the th- I, I think i've been undervaluing and underweighting the theme of a campaign and what that means for the whole campaign from the very first session to the very last and those themes of cold and isolation and alienation and alien alien sort of a you know you know the this the sort of alien injection that's inside rhyme of the frostmane has a big factor on its feeling and i think like i remember we had some rough starts with with rhyme of the frostmane and i think some of those rough starts were because everybody was on edge because of the feeling of the adventure right that it was a lot like, you know, it was people felt, you know, they felt the way that adventure wanted you to feel. And that first session probably defines that feeling more so, more so than anything else. And then that feeling sticks for the whole rest of the campaign. You can think about it with Curse of Strahd and the, 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 the sense of dread, the, you know, the sense of being stuck in this one area. And it's nighttime all the time and or night and gray, I guess. And the big gothic castle on the hill and knowing that like you can't escape this place. And you think about descent into Avernus, and like, I remember my wife telling me, it's the first time that when she heard, when she saw the city fall, and she saw this object, the, the what is it called? The big, the big orb that sits above the city, and she saw that turn black, go from white to black and fall into hell, that she was, you know, the, my, my wife was in tears over it, right? She, she was like, wow, right? She was, she was really emotionally grabbed by that. And that defined the rest. That defined the rest for her. It defined the rest for the other players. That like they need to go into El Terrell and solve this. It wasn't. They didn't make fun of it. They didn't make fun of the idea that like oh we have to go into hell at level four to save a city. Like it mattered to them because it it mattered in that session zero. So it kind of shows the importance of of making sure that that theme that that we're focused on the theme that we know what the theme is right and that we are able to focus on that theme when we are running our session zero because it's really going to set the stage for the whole rest of the campaign. And if that theme is fun and I think like, if, I think, you know, not, not through careful planning, but through fun interaction between my players and myself and, and fun role-playing and stuff. I think I, I was able to set that theme really well for rhyme for, for Wild beyond the witch light. And I think that that is going to, pay a lot of dividends. So I thought that that was was very interesting. Where did Avernus appear in your players' favorite campaigns? That's a good question. Let's take a look. So for my players, they ranked it second to lowest, right? Both both myself and they uh, ranked it second to lowest. So even though it had that strong theme, and I, I think like if I ask my players, like, do you regret playing that? I don't think they'd say they regret it. And I think we had a good time. But yeah, even then I think, I think that the, the rest of the campaign didn't sit. And we had some, we had some trouble bits, like the, the big one that came up in the middle and we had to sort of all stop and say, we're gonna we're gonna sort of retcon how this works were the soul coins for the vehicles because it's like, and, and again, the, the driver was, if you are a bunch of characters that are tied to Rhea Mantlemorn and the Hellriders in El and you're going into hell to try to rescue a bunch of people who have been trapped there, the idea that you're burning up coins that hold people's souls in order to drive a vehicle a few miles, that didn't sit well with anybody. And, and you know, in game, there was a lot of consternation about it. And then we stopped and, and sort of out of game – discussed it and then i kind of came forward with a solution which was that you can actually tap demon ichor instead that another npc who kind of saw that what that was doing to them said you know there's another way you can actually sort of squeeze the essence out of demons and turn that in and they're like oh that's much better demons aren't demons don't have souls right demons aren't even they're not they were never mortal creatures so sure we'll we'll harvest demon demon ichor and that means we have to go hunt big demons to get the demon demonicker to drive our vehicles, and that worked really well. It would have been better if I had put that in the beginning, so we didn't have that rough spot. But that definitely, you know that that definitely worked. That definitely worked better, uh, I thought. So yeah, so it is interesting that even though that I think the theme of descent and avernus, I nailed descent and avernus well. That that worked. That that worked, you know, that that worked well. Evil John says, my group really wants to do Avernus next. I'm so, so. Yeah, if you're not feeling, and, and someone at Rangavarg said, yeah, never run a game you're not excited about. That's probably true, right? Like somebody was talking about like, how do you get your players to vote on a thing? And I'm like, well, like they can vote, but I get 51%, right? Like I'm the one that actually has to run this thing and prepare this thing. So if I'm not excited for it, I don't think I'm going to offer it. Evil John says, I do have the Beatles big box. I mean, it can be fun. It's just, it's a lot of work, right? It's a lot of work. To, in my opinion, to wrangle that adventure, there was a lot of things about its design that just did not work out particularly well, but yeah. Like if you're not on it, I, you know, I don't know that I would, I don't, I don't know that I would recommend And do I recommend it? Probably not. Right. I mean, if you've got to beat on Grimm center and you already paid for it and you got all that stuff and that's, and that's great. But it's it's you know it's it's even like even with the Beetle and Grimm stuff you're gonna i mean, you I don't know maybe you run it as is right but I know I had to do a lot of work I had to do a lot of work to wrangle it into the right spot and yeah so Eva Jones, you said the good news is you already did all the work maybe like I, I offered a path but I think you still have to you still have to do a lot with it right I didn't rewrite it I, I just said like here's another angle you can take and I, and that angle worked really well the idea of the the path of the Hell Riders as a as a path through it really works but it can be kind of linear I don't know there's a lot there's a lot of work. So I don't know, yeah, that depends. But yeah, that, that, that's kind of interesting. Yeah, so you know, I guess what I, would, what I would offer in my experience is that the theme of the, this, this one really reinforced it for me more than anyone on, that I did. And maybe it's because of the difference between, uh, maybe it's because of the difference between Rhyme of the Frostmaiden and Wild Beyond the Witchlight, one of the darkest adventures they've done, literally, followed by one of the brightest adventures that they've done, and how different it was for my players when, when we were playing it. So, uh, that's pretty cool. One of the things I brought this up on my show, and I saw a post about it on Discord, and I saw a post about it on Twitter that kind of, you know, wanted not didn't really see clarification, had a difference of have a, a different opinion on World of Warcraft. And Wizards of the Coast and what that means when Wizards of the Coast comes out with a book or when they change things, this all stems from the upcoming changes from Monsters of the Multiverse, which I think is a couple of weeks away, right? I think in a couple of weeks, a new book will be out called Monsters of the Multiverse. That book is only available in a gift set, which really kind of sucks, right? There's no, there's, no good, there's no good reason for that, right? They could have come out with that book separately instead of selling us two other books that we already have. But yeah, and my recommendation is don't buy it, right? Right? If you already have Tasha's and 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 Xanathar's, don't buy Monsters of the Multiverse. Hubris. <laughs> Evil Judge says hubris. It is a little bit of hubris, isn't it? See? There's, there's there's hubris, right? And so I would not buy it. I am curious and I expect that D&D Beyond will be updated with the changes. And and I am buying it right I'm buying it I'm buying it for two reasons one is I do shows like this and I really want to kind of dig in and and see what the changes are and I know I already have Tasha's and Xanathar's and I'm going to be buying Tasha's and Xanathar's again I think it'll be my third Xanathar purchase maybe fourth I might have four copies of Xanathar's around if we include my wife's copy And it's a special edition cover, and I like to buy special edition covers, and I like to support my LFLGS. But I would not, I I certainly cannot recommend buying it, because if you already have Tasha's Xanathar's, it really seems to be a a waste. But I'm curious, I really want to see what the monster design is like. And yeah, CR Bandit says, it's predatory towards collectors. It really is. It, It is, but like, shame on us right? Like I'm a collector. I have every special edition cover except for Theros. And actually I'm kind of happy that I don't have Theros because it already broke my collection. It means if I miss another one, I'm not going to be upset. But like, I went out of my way to make sure that I got the special edition covers of Fizzbands and candle keep. And I don't, you know? Yeah. So I, I, I don't blame them. Like they're not making us buy it. Right. And as a collector, they're not making you buy it. Right. They are, you know, they're, they're capitalizing. And this, you know, like, Watson's not your friend, man. They're not your friend. They're not a non-for-profit organization. They're not out for the betterment of the world, right? They are commercial. Hasbro is a commercial company and the commercial companies are going to do what commercial companies do. And if they have an opportunity to make more money off of old books, I don't know why they did it. I guess they were, I guess they were Thinking like you know, the nice thing is you have your core book set, the core book gift set, right? And then you have this one next to it, which is Tasha's Xanathar's and Monsters of the Multiverse. And if you were starting fresh, right? If you weren't into D and D and now you're getting into D and D, buying the starter, buying the 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 core book gift set, and then buying this gift set gives you a lot of material, right? It's like 700 monsters and all the class stuff forever. Like those six books together are really. Uh, a powerful set of books right i give them that but they could have sold monsters of the multiverse separately and in, and the cash grab is they're going to sell it separately later sometime right but the question is is it going to be are the changes that are inside monsters of the multiverse going to be in DD beyond on release i and i don't think anybody has said uh one way or the other and i expect they will be right i expect they will be and and if they're not i would still wait like you know don't don't drop an extra 70 bucks or whatever it is you know more than that depending on where you're buying it so there but there was a, so there's been a lot of controversy mostly on reddit i'm really discovering sort of the, the different atmospheres i posted a post yesterday and got responses to it and the responses made me frown and there there's a lot of there was a lot of controversy on reddit about I guess there were two there were two areas one was like a few weeks ago there was a lot of controversy on reddit about changes to volo's guide and like how on earth will we ever be able to apply a mind flare again if you took those three sentences about mind flares away and the and I'm, I'm being terse but whatever and then it's the you're changing there were there were previews of the some of the racial changes that are coming in monsters of the multiverse monsters of the multiverse is changing I think every non-core race that is out Maybe, I don't know if it's all of them. It's, it's all, I think it's all of the core, all of the ones that are part of the main world. Not I don't think it includes Ravnica. I don't think it includes any of the Magic the Gathering ones. I'm not sure which ones it includes. But it has like 30 different races in it, right? I think I guess it's all the races that were in Volos and Morning Canons. So they're changing all of the races in Volos and Morning Canons, the mechanics of them. And that got people fired up. And like, I don't like where Wizards is going and I don't like all this stuff. And that kind of fired up the whole conversation of like, well, why does it matter? You've got the books. If you've got the original Volos and Morden Kanan's, you can play with those, right? And then it gets, to, yeah, but I use D Beyond, and D D Beyond's going to change, and that gets into my like, you know, we can't trust D and D Beyond right you can't trust that d Beyond is going to stay to whatever version you want it's going to shift wherever it goes and it may stop updating right what if they didn't update and you're like well now this isn't useful because I wanted the new races so you know I made, uh CR Bandis says I made a comment that I don't plan out how my players are going to get out of situations oh yeah that doesn't people tell me how awful that was I, I made a comment that I don't plan how my players are going to get out of situations yeah it was really funny I, I posted a post it got a lot of upvotes and then but the comments were all pretty negative comments or many of the comments are very negative comments and I was like that's weird like a lot of people liked it and then i'm like oh, i wonder how many downvotes it got it like it may have had twice as many upvotes because of a bunch of people downvoted and that's because it touched on guess what x card kind of stuff right it's touched on safety tools and there's a bunch of people when you bring up safety tools they, they have to get in your they have to get into your craw and talk talk to you about how wrong you are about safety tools and my group's not like that and you obviously don't know people and your people are just sensitive and all this other bs so whatever, I'm not concerned about that. I wasn't going to bring it up on the show, but here I am. Two things that came up was I I brought up a thing. I think I said it last on the Friday show, and I've certainly said this before, which is like World of War, which is D and D is not World of Warcraft, right? Like we we treat sometimes we treat D and D. Sometimes I see people who it feels like they are treating D&D like it's World of Warcraft, that like you have to lobby the company to get the kind of things you want in the game. Or you want to be angry about the things that they have changed in the game. And there's a huge difference, right? Obviously, there's a huge difference. But the big one is World of Warcraft, you are stuck with whatever Blizzard decides, right? Like there wasn't a classic server for a long time. And a bunch of people had to lobby to get the classic server brought back, right? You can't just take your version of world of warcraft and go off and do your own thing there was actually people who tried it, and it didn't really work right and so you can't world of warcraft you you suffer with whatever changes they decide if they want to change the level of a zone they change the level of the zone right and that's that if they want to change different art they'll change the art and that's that if they want to change how class features work and i i spent you know 10 years how long did i spent i spent i had ten thousand hours over seven or eight years, playing EverQuest, right? I played a ton of EverQuest. And I remember, we used to joke about the fact that they're like, there were two good ways to get loot. One was to go into a dungeon and kill monsters and get the loot. The other way was to go complain to the developers that you needed more loot, right? And it was like, you had to lobby the company to get the things that you wanted to get in the game. It was the only way to do it because there was no other copy of the game. D&D... Our copy of the game is our copy. Nobody can change it, right? I've got my Volos and Canaans and they're going to have the old text in it, right? And I'm apparently going to get a copy of Volos and Mordenkainen's that have the new text in it. So, you know, they can't change it. And a good example is, like, how often has Wizards changed uh, D&D 3.5 in the last five years? And the answer is not at all, right? How often have they changed 0e? right? Or first edition or second edition or third edition, right? They haven't changed it at all. They're done with those versions, right? Those versions are the way they are. Lots of other people have Pathfinder created entirely new versions of 3.5, but you don't have to play with Pathfinder, right? You can play with whatever version you want. So like, I, I guess my my main thing is like 5e is going to fork, right? There's going to be a fork with 5e. And I think it's starting now, right? I think we know it's going to be... I, 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 you know, I'm making predictions, and as we all know, predictions are BS. Like, like you know, people are great at making predictions; we're just terrible with accuracy. So I'm probably terrible with accuracy, but I I wouldn't be surprised. Let me let me rephrase. I wouldn't be surprised if we see forks in 5E. We're going to see classic 5E, which is like we play with the core books and that's it. Or we play with the core books plus whatever the DM decides they want to add. And then kind of new 5e, which is, oh, I'm using the new books or I'm using only new monsters. And an example was like during my session zero of Wild Beyond the Witchlight, one of the things that I brought up was I wanted to talk about Counterspell. Right, And I wanted to mention to them, hey, I want you to know that WotC's new monster design, Counterspell, is a lot less effective than it used to be. So just I'm warning you now, before anybody is even close to getting Counterspell, that you're going to find monsters that are pulling off abilities that look a lot like spells but aren't spells. And that's because Watsy is changing how they handle spells and powers of monsters, right? And they that makes them generally not, not Counterspellable. That is an example of like... I want to bring up, it is the new rule as written, right? If I'm using these new monsters, that's how it's going to work. But it's a change, right? It's a change in how 5e plays out. And I wanted my players to be aware of that change before it became an issue because I don't want them being like, wait a minute, this guy's casting like thundering bolts and he's hitting three of us. I want to counterspell that. I'm like, that's not actually a counterspellable effect, right? So yeah, so we're going to, so that's an example, right? The, The shift in monsters, the new shift is going to be new races versus old races, right? Like, are we playing with the original Volo races? Like, I guess Yowanti Iw- is an example. The Yowanti had immunity to poison. The new one only has resistance to poison. So are some DMs like, no, I actually like the old one better and we're going to use that one. And the new ones are going to say, no, we're going to use the new ones. That's another example of a fork. So I think the forks are going to start now. By a fork, I mean like some groups are going to play using some set of 5e rules and another group is going to play with another set of 5e rules. And I think we're going to see more DMs that are saying, I liked it the old way and I'm going to use the old way. right? And some of it could be monsters. I use the old mage, not the new mage because I liked when they cast spells a certain way. And I think you, you might start to see it with with races, right? I, I, one difference that we'll start to see is: Are you playing with the optional? Or are, are you playing with the racial attribute or the racial ability bonuses set like they were in the player's handbook, or are you playing with the Tasha rules that you can move your ability scores? Wherever you want. I, I have decided that like the Tasha rule is my new default. Right. I like I like that characters. I like that players can choose where their attributes go. The, to me, the argument that that player that that player characters are unique in the world and don't have to be bound by whatever the racial limitation was beyond all of the other problematic issues with it. The idea that like a hero is a hero, they're they're unique. You don't have to say they they're like everybody else, right? They are unique. So having a fairy barbarian, you are a fairy, you know, a fairy barbarian with a strength of twenty, you know, that is cool, right? And you can say like fairies can't have a strength of twenty; they should be minus two to its strength. Why, right? Like it's that they're a unique one. It's kind of that thirteenth age, one unique thing idea. So I think we're gonna see more groups where they're sort of deciding ahead of time what's going on. And that's what I mean by a difference between World of Warcraft. You can't do that in World of Warcraft. World of Warcraft, you have like classic server and you have your role play server and you have stuff like that. But what about Blizzard decided to put those in place? Watsy's not deciding this. Watsy's coming out with new stuff. So the arguments I heard against this was, well, my players are expecting that I'm going to be including all of the new stuff. And somebody brought up, I think on Discord, somebody brought up, my player actually buys all of the books. And has a general expectation that they're going to be able to use all the books. And what I would what I would clarify is like, okay, that's, that's something to talk about with your group. And you can't trust Watsi, right? You can't trust Watsi to come out with books at the pacing and with the level and the style that you want. They're going to do whatever they do. And it's up to us independently to decide what we're going to allow and what we're not and what we like and what we don't. And so you, you can argue with me about whether it's a big deal or not, but whether it's a big deal or not, you're either going to be hurting, you're going to be hurting, right? Like if you, if you decide Watsy does have a bigger impact on your game than I'm, than I'm making out. when I say like you, you are in full control over what content you allow in your own game. And you say to me back, not really. My players have expectations about what they're going to allow. And they expect I'm going to have Tasha's and they expect I'm going to have this and they expect I'm going to have Strixhaven and, and these other things, you know, Hey, it ain't up to you and me, you know, if, if you have decided that your game is going to have that bigger impact and, and that anything Watsi comes out with is going to land at your table, you, you know, all right, but you're not going to control what they're going to drop on your table then, right? And I would suggest it's better to have that conversation upfront early on before a campaign starts to say, these are the things that we're going to allow or not. This is why one of the things and I forgot to put it in my session zero, where I say this campaign will allow the optional feat and multi-class rules. Right. And that's because I think a lot of groups expect that the feed and multi class rules are always on. And they're not. They're optional rules, right? We don't allow the optional flanking rule, for example. So, could players come with a mismatched set of expectations to your game and they expect they'll be able to use like new spells from Strixhaven? Sure, it could happen. I think that's probably something to address and to say, look, look, you're not going to probably allow a Loxodon in your game. You're probably not going to allow you know, the, 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 the Simic, the Simic hybrids, right? There's lots of different stuff from lots of, you know, are you going to allow Jim's magic missiles from acquisitions incorporated into your game? Are you going to allow all of the spells that exist in the wild mount book, right? There's a lot of books already. Like we're already suffering. And I, I seriously doubt I, I would expect the number of groups where they allow everything that wizards has put out. I bet you that's pretty small. Right, I bet you. Even if a DM said you're allowed to bring anything that WotC has published, I bet you players are still generally picking basic stuff. I think it's really rare that like every spell from every one of the books, because there's a lot of them now. Right, there are many, many books, and the idea that you just everything is on and everybody can play anything, and that you can play like a Loxodon with a Tortle with you know whatever, I seriously, I seriously doubt that that is a that that is true. I, I did have somebody else who brought up Adventures League. I see Adventures League is coming up um, and Gaming and BS says DDAL is in a core plus one and DDAL actually took away core plus one. You no longer are bound by core plus one, but they do tell you which books are allowed and you don't get access to like the, the, you don't get access to the Magic the Gathering books, for example. I think you do get like Tasha's and Mordenkainen's and Xanathar's and Volos. Like, all, I think all of those are allowed, but like I already was limited because like I couldn't, I, I was playing in a witch-like game and I wanted to play a Hex Hexblood, which is from Van Richten's Guide. And I kind of thought, oh, Van Richten's Guide has probably got to be like Xanathar's guide and the others and they said no Van Richten's guide isn't allowed so I got limited in my Adventures League game to limited source and I just I thought a Hexblood sounded like a cool being a, being a daughter of a hag sounded like a fun character to play in a, in a Witchlight game and I that, I liked it enough that I said you, you can play a Hexblood in my Witchlight game right I, I opened that up but like I don't know if Fizzbands, like I don't know if Fizzband spells are considered illegal or not that's a good that's a good question I think they define per campaign what books are allowed for that campaign but it's no longer under a core plus one. So when I talk, so I think it's pretty clear to most people the difference between Wizards of the Coast and Blizzard when it comes to World of Warcraft and D&D, right? Obviously, like, one's a computer game, one's not. But the point is, one, one, the company has complete control over what your experience is going to be playing that game. Blizzard has complete control. They might allow things like a classic server, a role-play server, and other things, but they could they could just as likely not do that. And, and they decide, like, well, should the classic server have... You know, any of the expansions or not right. Wizards of the Coast does not have that control. We might give it to them. We might say, yeah, we're going to allow every book that Wizards comes out. And we might say, and we're also not going to allow any third party books. But generally, as DMs, we have a lot of freedom and a lot of choice to decide what happens at our game, what we do allow, what we don't allow and what tools we use and what tools we don't. And, and I would suggest, like, you know, we pay more attention. I get criticism. Actually, this is, this is valid. Uh, I get criticism, like, hey, you talk a big game about including third-party material, but then during your in – your, in your Session Zero guide, you only have Watsi stuff. And I'm like, yeah, that's true, right? But, I, you know, it's because I, I, I don't have a handle on the other stuff. Could I allow – could I allow character options from like Midgard? Probably. But also I know my players are generally playing with DD Beyond. And if I opened it up to those other things, it's going to be kind of a pain in the ass for them to add it in. So, you know, this is a matter of like I have decided what allow. And that's what I allow. So I thought I thought that, that was that that was interesting. Let's talk about patron questions. Let's look at some patron questions. So every month I post a thread on the Sly Flourish Patreon server on the uh, Sly Flourish Patreon, asking for questions from patrons. And we get a big ass list of them and I put them in and I, I look at them and I throw them in and many of the questions I answer right here on this show. I try to get through all of the questions every month, but I always get a lot of questions. A- Aiden B says, have you ever revisited stuff that you previously deemed non-value adding and, and found a new worth in it? And if yes, what did you cha- what changed your mind on it? For context, I've previously decided to give up on nerding out on unique cuisine and dishes in my setting. But when I recently went back to it and introduced my players to a special dish when they were uh, staying in the tavern, two of them discussed it with me after the session and told me how much they like stuff like this. Giving the world a unique feel. So this is a good question, like a good lazy DM question. And and paraphrasing, the idea is like when we're doing lazy DM style prep, we're eliminating a lot of things, right? We're eliminating a lot of things that might be, might be, might be, you know, could be useful, but we think like, well, it's probably just not as high impact as, as we want. And you know, I think somebody else brings up like the or maybe it was last week where they brought up the example of calendars. Like, do you have a fixed calendar and, and days of the week and weeks of the weeks of the month and months of the year and kind of keep that calendar in mind? Or, or do you just ignore that? So have I, is there anything that I've added back in that I had eliminated? Not really. I, there, I know that there are certain things that are high value when I can do them. Good handouts, good 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 maps, good, good physical props always work. It's different now that we're playing online a lot. I don't, I can't think of any other elements where like I, I pulled it out. I, I had stopped doing it and then added them in and then it turned out it was really good. There's probably a few. Music could be one, but it's a good idea. And I like the, I, the, the example you bring up of like bringing in unique dishes that have like maybe special properties. You know, trying things all the time, I'm a big believer in, right? I I really think that that idea of like dropping something in our game that we can try once and see how it plays and then decide if that's something more. I've done a lot of that. And I've, I've certainly had things where I would try something and then it would work well and I would keep doing it over and over again because it turned out that that worked really well. So I think that, you know... I, I think that it's a really, yeah, that tr- you're constantly finding ways to try out new things. and if you've and, and that is a good idea. like if you look back at something you had dried and it didn't really work and you say, yeah, but it, maybe if there's a different angle on it, or maybe things have changed now, that you can add that in. you know I think I think that that is a, I definitely think that that is a, a a good a good idea. I can't think of anything where I've done that where I'm like, I had pulled something out and added it in. You know, a minor one was like a house rule that I had right for early on in the game. I really felt like moon druids were overpowered, and then I saw that like wow, well, they're not really as overpowered as I think, and I added back in. So I had house rules that I've tried, and then removed again, right? But I don't think that's quite the same thing. I don't think that's exactly what you're what you're bringing up there. But I think that that's a really good idea. Tom C, how do you prepare more sessions in advance for a homebrew campaigns using the Notion template? Would you create uh, the next locations and NPCs or try to guess what would be the scenes for two games up front? The, so m- my recommendation, you're asking, right? And it's just my recommendation. It's just my thoughts. You know, always try. Always try whatever you want. You really should only do this if you absolutely have to. And somebody brought up, like, if you're running two sessions back to back or somebody said, like, well, I'm running like a gaming weekend and we're going to have four sessions in two days. You know, I wanna do some prep up front to have all of those sessions laid out. Generally, only if you're in a circumstance like that would I recommend planning more than one session ahead. I really am a firm believer that the only session that matters is the next one you're going to run. And that that is going to change things enough that you don't wanna plan the session after that. If you really have to, because of time, like, oh, I only have a half hour between the two sessions that I'm gonna run. Even then, if you have a half hour and you have the opportunity, first, I would try to get more time. And, and second, spend the half hour redoing it. But you can certainly plan out parts of a your sessions ahead of time. One would be locations, right? You bring up like, would you create the next? Locations are a good one because you, you can generally use them a lot of different ways. So you, if you've seen my prep, you've seen me spend time prepping something that I can run over multiple sessions. A lot of time it's a... A lot of time it's it's prepping a location. Certainly, I've had NPCs where I prepped an NPC and didn't have that NPC come in until two or three sessions later. So yeah, think about the physical things in the world and prep those because they they can last even if the plot changes. But scenes scenes I would worry about. I I would not try to plan out the scenes that you expect to because those scenes can change. When you get to the end of a campaign and you really know where things are, again, you might have seen this in like my Frostbane videos where it's like I I, I really. I knew where things were going to go and I knew like where it had to be at the end of the campaign and I'm like what scenes that need to occur but even that was more just me making sure that the scenes that I really felt like had to happen that I had outlined them and it's like you know I want to have these things happen right I want them I think the campaign will be a lot nicer when these things happen it's a little different than saying like I expect things will go a certain way so my first recommendation is don't do it unless you have to two would be If you, if you prep things like a location, you could certainly get a map and and fill in like what you think is where in the map and fill in the location and do all that. And that might last multiple sessions, but mostly focus on the next session. And then only if you know, you're going to be running multiple sessions back to back, then you might think about like, what are the main beats of those sessions and focus on those main beats, but, but keep a flexibility because the sessions are going to change from session to session. That's my thought. Alex G. How do you handle an unexpected PC death at your table? One that comes totally out of the blue, maybe in a random encounter. My players got dangerously close to two of the PCs dying and I just want to know your thoughts on the matter. I let them happen, right? I think, that, I think that some of those unexpected deaths, almost I think to me an expected death is a little bit questioning. Like why is it expected? And were you railroading too much? Like expected is like, I know that they're going into a very dangerous situation and it's very possible somebody might die. Like they're going to go ahead into an ancient dragon's lair and you know, it might be really bad. I guess that would be an inversion of an expected death that's okay. Rather than I expect I'm going to wipe them all out and then that's the other thing's going to happen, which is not a great way to go. So but so that means most deaths, I think, would come out of the blue. And those are parts of the story. The story, we don't, we don't determine the beats of the story. The beats of the story happen during the game. And an unexpected death you know an unexpected death is part of those beats and it's really like when i think back to the character deaths i've had in my games they they all were somewhat unexpected right i didn't i didn't necessarily expect that someone was going to die and 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 we remember them right and they can be hard they can sometimes they can be interesting right i've certainly had character deaths that were interesting even for the player where where it occurred but i've also had them where they're really hard right and like players are very sad about it and everybody gets very quiet and nobody was you know god that's really harsh right but we remember them they they become part of the story so you know i think that if they happen they happen right and we want to be careful with them because they you know our players have emotional connections to these characters we want to respect that right that doesn't mean we hold back on it but it means we respect that, and we and we you know we recall that it, it's you know that that they care and that it's really hard, right? So we want to be careful with that. But we, that doesn't mean we don't do it, right? It means we we treat it with when it happens, we treat it with respect, and then think about the you know the logistics, like how is that player going to get involved in the game again? What do we do to make that player more involved in the game, right? What do we do it? What do we do about that? But it's not about softening the game. It's about making sure that like the game is still fun for that player, even if their character dies, right? Like, hey, you get to control the NPC now. So I mean my big answer is like, you know, if it happens, it happens, right? As as, you know, Drago from Rocky Four says, if he dies, he dies, right? And so, yeah. But it but it's it's yeah. And then it's a relatively infrequent occurrence. So I don't have great advice on on it in general, but Yeah. If it happens out of the blue, it happens out of the blue. And I think your players will remember it, but it might be hard at the time. And then later they'll talk about it and go, yeah, you remember that? Like I got killed by that thing. I had characters that got killed by random encounters and it was pretty great. The stories were pretty great. Kevin D. Oh, Kevin, I'm going to make fun of you. I have a world I've been building for years now since third edition, and I want to turn it into a campaign that might be able to publish, but I have a couple of issues that I was wondering if you could weigh on. Some of my content... Is stuff I created on the fly for specific players and characters, but turned out funny how the world builder is the one with the uh five hundred word question, isn't it? Sorry, Kevin. I've been waiting on that joke since I wrote this question down. Some of the content and stuff I created on the fly, I really wanted to hear to incorporate the world in the adventure path that they created for specific characters. Should I make those characters NPCs that the characters can help uh, or set rules and structure in place to help the character to help the player's character? Example is I had a player who didn't like the SMR paladin, so I created a mad I'm gonna I'm I'm reading fast. Another god that gained a, a relic of power and allowed it to slay their god, and then last paladin of the order, they were bestowed the god's power to the slave man mage. I merge this in, with another player's patron story to make it a prophecy that the two of them would slay the mad paladin. As this was something special. They got to basically play level 20 versions of themselves and fight a CR20 Mad Pally. How would you handle making this generic enough for an adventure path? I'm going to step back and say the first thing you want to do when you're thinking about taking like a campaign setting that you've done and and releasing it to the world is asking what value are you providing to the people who are picking it up? And, And make that the first and foremost, the thing that you're focused on, right? Like otherwise it's a vanity project, right? If you, if you are putting out a campaign to kind of tell everybody all the cool stuff that happened with the characters in your own home game, you can write, you know, write a blog post about it or whatever. But if you, if you God help if you're selling something, if you're putting a product together to sell something, really ask yourself, what value are you? This is my opinion, right? My opinion is my own. What value are you providing to the DM who, is going to buy it right how are you making their life easier how are you giving them things that they would not want to do on their own and i think that that steers some of the answers to the questions that you've got like while you're putting these stories into your campaign world the question is are those stories and that that you've put together are those helping the dm that you're handing it to right or should they have their own stories in it and you know me hopefully you know like my my drive and, and and is this is like I want campaign worlds that are that are giving me the tools that I want to be able to tell the stories that I want to tell or that I want to share with my players. I don't want someone else's stories, right? This is like the back history and like NPCs with huge paragraphs of text about where they came from. I don't care. I care about the characters and I care about my NPCs, right? So what are you giving to what are you giving to the DMs that you're selling your product to that's making their life better, right? And if, and if it's mostly the stories that you had in your campaign, ask yourself really hard if that's really making their lives better or not. It might be fun and interesting and it might be a good, you know, but like, I go back to like, nobody wants to hear about someone else's campaign, right? Like generally speaking, and being very flip, right? Generally speaking, people don't want to hear about your homebrew campaign. (laughs) So ask yourself why your campaign world is unique and better. And what are you offering? that's really better. And look at campaign settings. Look at other people's campaign settings. You could look at the Wildmount book. You can look at a lot of the WotC ones. You can look at Midgard. Right? I'm not saying they're all perfect examples, but you can look at them. Look at like what MT Black did with Iskandar, right? I I really I think MT Black's idea of like a campaign world that's in in individual pieces that are small and digestible. That's really a great way to go. So think about think about that. But like as far as like integrating integrating a lot of the stuff that happened in your campaign into a campaign book that you want to publish, you, if you know, put it, write it on a sticky note and stick it up there and say, what am I offering to the DMS? That's buying this Like, How is this making their lives better and focus on that? That's the thing I would, have. I think that was the longest question we had. PhD 20 says in 2015, look at this in 2015, you joined Matt click and me to talk about one year of D five E in a live stream. I remember that. I asked the question what are your favorite and least favorite things about 5e. I believe your favorite was the speed of combat and 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 what that opens up in the game. Your least favorite was debilitating effects on boss monsters, saver or suck or, or things like force cage. I'd love to know your answers now that you've changed now that uh, things have changed for another 6 years. That is man, that's a that's a big fun question. And I don't know, I could probably talk for a half hour just about that. What are the things that I love most about 5e? I think 5e has a near I don't want to say perfect. I'll go with near perfect, right? A near perfect balance of accessibility and crunch to bring people into the game and make it easy to play and and streamline play and 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 let us focus on the stories that we've got but also enough crunch to keep veteran players interested and excited enough to keep playing over and over again. And that example of the difference in the styles of the stories between Rhyme and the Frostmaiden and Wild Beyond the Witchlight, they're very different campaigns. And I have the same players. I've, I have players that have now been playing with me for like 15 years, right? And we've been playing 5E since we got the starter set. We've been playing since D&D Next. So we've been playing for seven, eight years now, right? And, it is a, it still is keeping people interested. There's still enough ways to combine classes and subclasses. There's so many subclasses that, that people, you know, it's rare for me to find a player who's playing the the same kind of character, even mechanically. And, and they're still having a lot of fun with it. Right. So I think that, and yet, we can still tell these really interesting stories. We're not so bogged down in the mechanics that we're that we're not really able to enjoy the separation of a of a of a story between like *Rime of the Frostbane* and *Wild Beyond the Witchlight*. So that that idea of I think it really hit the right balance of flexibility and and a story focused approach with enough crunchy mechanics to keep it interesting week after week, year after year for seven years. Right? I think that that's that's probably my. My biggest the the biggest thing I love the thing I I don't like is how the mechanics of the game still have a pretty big focus on gridded combat when even the makers of the game are not using gridded combat when they are both playing it in public and from what I understand playing it in private. I I really think that the game, and I think they had two opportunities to do this. They had three opportunities to do this and didn't do it with all three. I think that Wizards of the Coast could have come up with a relatively straightforward set of guidelines to to help people adjudicate combat without a grid that they could have put in the dungeon master's guide. They could have put in Xanathar's guide and they could have put it in, in Tasha's and they didn't do that in any of those three. And I think it would have helped a lot of people out. Cause I feel like there's still a big group. And, and so there are people who play D and D on a grid because they enjoy that style of play. And I don't hold anything against that. Then there's, I think there are people who play five e on a grid because they think they have to and because they don't feel like they have any other good way to to adjudicate combat without the grid and i have spent five six years writing up different kinds of guidelines in all kinds of different places including my latest book the lazy DM's companion has a new way of handling two different ways to handle theater of the mind combat and, and lazy DM's companion and i think that there's like a there's a group of people who feel like they don't have the tools they don't think you can play 5e without a grid they don't know how you would do it and I think Watsy could have done a better job of clarifying that you can and talking about what that's like to offer up some options. And I think it would have only taken a page or two in any of the books that have sort of a DM focus. I think Tasha's would have been a great place for it. I think Xanathar's would have been a great place for it. The idea that Xanathar's has like how to use dice to form a grid. Like why, right? Like nobody does that. So you know, So that that's something where I feel like they, that, that's something that I, I wish it had grabbed onto more abstract concepts like 13th Age did or like Numenera did, where the mechanics of the game can be done on a grid but don't have to be, right? And, and the reality is 5e doesn't have to be played on a grid. I play Theater of the Mind all the time, all the time. My players are used to it, everybody does it. So I think, you know, when, when I hear people say, and I've, I definitely get this all the time, which is 5e was meant to be played on a grid and you, and you cannot play without a grid. And I'm like, f- like 40% of players don't right? So A, that's not, it's not, neither of those statements are true, right? So yeah, LARP Strong Carter says, do you mean like how Numenera has distance simplified with immediate short and far? Yes, I do. And same with 13th age, 13th age has like the medium and long distance. And I think you can still have like a fixed five foot distance, but say, you know, and this is what I do in the Lazy Dames Companion, you can still have zone-based combat, right? There's other ways to do it. And I think they could, just like they talk about like, you know, do you have square fireballs or do you bother to make them round or something like that? The reality is fireball doesn't fit on a grid right that's my big argument about it. it's a gridded game like, fireball doesn't fit on a grid it has a radius any any spell that's a radius <laughs> doesn't fit on a grid right so you know it doesn't work so that those are the, those are the two things uh that I would that I would bring up so good good thing is I just I, th- I think it really hit the right balance of flexibility and crunchiness that keeps us coming back to play 5v over and over again and but I also wish that they had better rules for Jamie says, I've always run homebrew adventures, but for the first time, I'm incorporating short published adventures into the campaign. The problem is I don't really know how to evaluate whether an adventure is good or not just by reading it. Do you have any advice on how to spot problem areas in a published adventure before I run it? And are there any red flags I should keep an eye out for? That is... That's another great question. I think I answered this on Patreon and I was like, I got to think about this more. And then I didn't think about it more, but it's a great, it's a really great question. The number one thing I think is, do you dig it? When you read it, do you like it? Right? Because you're going to be the one running it. And if you read it and you like it, that, you know, you're going to be able to deal with the problems that it has. I, I would expect, I would be worried about adventures that have a lot of text that doesn't relate to the things that are going to happen in the game, or, or that that are things that are going to be exposed to the characters. If there's lots and lots and lots of backstory, it's probably not going to be that you know. It's probably not going to be that great. Editing is probably you know. I'd like, I like if if I I'll tell you a couple of things. Playtesting is there, are there credited playtesters, right? When I when I buy something or I look at it, I want to know that they playtested this. I want to know that somebody other than the author ran this tried it out and sent feedback and that that feedback was incorporated into the adventure. It's not a, it doesn't mean it's a good thing or bad. It means, you know, it means that somebody else tried this. Right. And I think that's to me, play testing, play testing is something that I look for. And it's, and it's something where you can see with sort of, and I'm going to say amateur, but not amateur is not as a pejorative, right. When you see kind of independently published stuff on like the DMS guild or drive through or stuff like that, you know, I want to know. Like, it, it means it means something if the person who wrote it also play tested it, right? That definitely means something. But it means more if other groups play tested it. So if there's more than six people listed in the play test line, that that helps me out. And if you're writing something, I highly recommend crediting your play testers or at least mentioning thanks to the 386 play testers who tested this, right? Because not only are you thanking the people who helped, you are telling me you had 386 people that play tested your thing. So playtesting is a big one, and and I look for that. Editing is something else. If something is poorly edited, or you know, a lot a lot of times, like I'll look at the design of something and I'll see like, oh, you know, I can tell that they cheaped out on stuff. And if they cheaped out in one area, how do I know that the rest of it is good? It's not a great indicator, but it kind of tells about how much effort the person put in. So if I see kind of a bad layout, if I see poor editing, if I see only stock art, you know, I might be a little less inclined to think that it's a good thing that I want to run because. My alternative is I can go to Cobalt Press and run anything they do, and they have spent tens of thousands of dollars on the things that they put out, probably hundreds of thousands of dollars on the things they put out. So why would I run something where clearly somebody wasn't willing to put a lot of you know time and money and effort into it? compared to something that I can run where somebody did spend a lot of time and money on it. Something else is like, does it make sense, right? When you read it, does it does it grab you? Can you understand it? Can you grok it? Can you, can you look at this and say, yeah, I get it. I get how this is going to run and I can see how this can play out of my game. Or I don't really understand how this works. I'll pick on a Cobalt Press adventure. There's a Cobalt Press adventure I tried to run that had apparently been play tested at a lot of conventions and stuff like this. So it hit all the marks that I just brought up. But when I read it, I'm like, I don't really understand how I'm supposed to run this. It was a mystery where... The, the, the clues to the mystery ended up defining what the result was and I, and I, I i get that idea I couldn't get it to play and I, I couldn't understand it when I was reading it and then I couldn't get it to i couldn't under i couldn't get it to play out when I ran it either and i ended up being a venture I, I ran it and like the play I players had a good time with it and that was all fine but I had a really hard time running it because I didn't understand it when I first read it and it didn't help when I tried to run it right so can you understand how the thing is supposed to play out and does it make sense so i think i i hope those those are just a few off the top of my head really great question like what are the criteria for for a good adventure maybe something i want to spend more time with i'm i'm gonna i'm gonna leave this question unchecked because i think this might be an interesting article that i want to examine so we're gonna keep that we're gonna keep that around because that's really a really good one thank you for that question jamie really outstanding question Zach W, we'll do one last question, then we'll call it a day. Zach W, how come you suggest DC settings between 10 and 20 rather than the full 10 to 30 range? Do you find yourself setting DCs differently for identical challenges based on player level? So the first one is you could, you could do 10 to 30, right? I think the, the problem is that like 10 to 30, the average is 20 and 20 is high, right? So to me, like 10, 10 to 20 should, feels like the right range of difficulty for things that characters are likely to experience in a regular world, right? You're not likely to find DC 30 things going around a town, depending on what you're trying to do. Right? So I would, you can go higher than 20. I think you need to have a good reason why something is higher than a 20 for a DC. And it, it's very circumstantial, right? Like what would it like? Like, let's say you're scaling a wall of a castle, All right, There's an old ruined castle and you're scaling the wall of the castle. Different circumstances could require a different DC. If it's like a rough castle wall, you know, with big bricks and it's got, you know, cracks in the walls and ivy grown on the side, DC might only be like a 12 to climb that castle wall. It might not be very hard. If it's like sheer obsidian, slick mirror like obsidian, right? Really hard to climb. You, you know, you might say like you're not able to climb it unless you have some way to climb sheer obsidian, right? Instead of just dropping a DC on that. But if it's like cracked obsidian, you could say, like, it's going to be hard and it might be dangerous, that's like a DC eighteen. Right. But like once you cross 20, the answer is are, is it reasonable that can somebody can do it at all? Now there's some supernatural stuff, right? When you get into the outer plains, when you get into like Mount Celestia, when you when you get into like really, you know, supernatural areas and supernatural occurrences, that's when the DCs might go above twenty. But the, the problem with like a 10 to 30 range is you might, I, if I had said like you'd pick a DC between 10 and 30, well, the average is 20, right? And, and, and that's way too high. So to me, like in most circumstances, tier one, tier two kind of games, 20 is going to be really on the hard side. Convincing somebody of something is generally, either, either it's 10 to 20 or it's not possible, right? Once you cross 20, the question is, is it even possible? Second, the second one. Do you find yourself setting DCs differently for identical challenges based on player level? No, and I don't. I don't support that idea. I feel pretty strongly about this. Now, and, and again, everybody's happy to go whatever they. This is this is the question and argument that my my friend Teos and Ab- Teos Abadia and I have had, I think, for like five years. I think we've. I had him on the show to talk about this. And, you know, I my my belief is that. That we want to set DCs based on what the, the on the difficulty of something in the world, regardless of the characters. that that to me is a, a key point. How hard is this lock to pick, period, right? Not how good is my rogue? And now the lock gets stronger because the rogue is stronger. I think it breaks it breaks the simulation of the world when we create DCs that are built around a character's capabilities, right? I think it works better when, we set the DC regardless of the characters and then let them do it. And what that means is like if you've got a master rogue who's just dumped everything into, into lock picking, and they're they can, they can, they can make a 30, they're walking around unpicking locks left and right, right? They shouldn't be hard for them. I forget, there was a movie I was watching, and it was like people are just running up and, and going and unpicking locks like crazy. And you're like, well, obviously they can because they're like superheroes, right? They know how to do, they know how to unpick locks, you know? They're like James James Bond. James Bond never had trouble picking a lock of a normal door, right? So, you know, so, so my, my answer would be no, build the DC. And then I do, I, I say this for like the whole rest of the world too, right? You don't generally, other than boss fights, boss fights, I'll tune around the characters cause I want boss fights to play a certain way. And even then I bet you that makes them a little too gamey, right? When I do that, I like, I still do it. And I did it for like the end of the, my rhyme of the Frostmaiden games and it worked out and it was fine and everybody had a good time, but it felt like, you know, it felt like, you know, like a, like a video game, right? And instead, almost every other aspect of the world should be based on what makes sense for the world, right? Encounter. when it, You know, it start with like, what's, what's the story of the world telling you first? right in all things encounters with monsters dungeon layouts you know npc interactions you know s- reactions of people in town everything should be built around like what's the story say and then the mechanics should wrap around that right and and the same is certainly true with the dc when you look at a lock ask yourself how hard is this lock why is it hard is it an 18 is it because it's the king's vault and is it a 20 because he paid a lot of money to put a good thing on that vault or is it like you know the the dude who just put a crappy lock on his thing and it's only a 12 so You know, I would I would say that's that's my feeling about setting DCs for challenges. I would not I would not set up different DCs for the same thing because of the characters who do that. I feel like that kind of breaks the simulation in my mind. And I'm you know, and I'm still I'm kind of table pounding, but it's with a light a light table pound, right? Like you go, you know, game is your own. You can do it. You can do what you want. And Tails doesn't agree with me, right? He he believes that the challenges that show up in the game. Like we're, we're there to challenge the characters and like, you know, yeah, ropes can have different, I mean, we make fun of the rope. The DC, DCs are various ropes, right? The rope suddenly gets slicker when a higher level character goes. So I disagree, right? But, but he's a very smart dude and, and, and very good designer and his players have a good time in his game. So clearly you can go a different way and still have a lot of fun. Uh, Carter says along the notion, would you auto succeed on lower DCs or still have the character role? Even if they're very likely to succeed. A lot of times I would have them auto succeed. A lot of times I would not bother to roll, like if it just doesn't make sense. If they're, if like if they can beat it on like a two or a five, you know, I'll I'll just hand wave it. But a lot of it depends on the the story too. Is the story, you know, would a one change things? Like if you're if you have a rogue, let's say you have a group of characters going through a dungeon at a normal pace, and they come up to a locked door. You know, and and you just decide like the the, the dungeon is an old orc stronghold. And so the lock would be the kind of, the lock that an orc would put on a door. And your rogue is like, you know, really, really good. You say, you don't have any trouble and you're able to pick this lock. If they're being chased by, you know, a horde of orcs is chasing them down the hall and they got to get that door open fast, a one might matter, right? And so you might say, roll your check. And he goes, it's only a DC 12 and you're, you know, plus nine on your check. But roll it anyway, because a one could be interesting, right? So, you know, roll when it's interesting. Roll when the outcome either way is interesting. If it's not interesting, you just pass it. You know. And you don't even have to wait until it's really easy, right? You could just say, if they have all the time in the world to pick something, and they can pick it, they can just do it. So so that that certainly works. Uh, Gandolin says, the only thing I'd use to explain the change in DC aside from the mechanical difficulty is the stress of the situation. Maybe... I don't think the DC on a lock changes. You might, you might say like that, that's one where you could throw advantage and disadvantage, right? If you have all the time in the world, you might have advantage. You also might just say they do it. If it's really stressful and they're running, and by the way, a fireball's coming down the hall at you, you might impose disadvantage on their check, right? And that's kind of saying there's a circumstance change, but the DC of the lock is still the DC of the lock, I think. I think that's how it works. Zach, great question. Thank you for bringing that up. Uh, and to the patrons of Sly Flourish, thank you always for your support. And I am really enjoy I really enjoy answering these questions. I want to thank everybody for hanging out with me this morning to talk about all things D&D. If you enjoyed this show, you can help me out by subscribing to the Sly Flourish newsletter, supporting me directly on Patreon, subscribing to my videos on YouTube, or picking up any of my books. Thank you all very much for hanging out with me today. Have a great day and get out there and play some D&D.